five minute version of of what all this means because you've got the background and the the, the the learning in AI, that's your PhD, right? Yeah. Come on, tell me, the, 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 well, tell me what the, the reality is. The AI qualifying exam at Stanford, uh, in, for the PhD program at Stanford, used to be the most difficult and most comprehensive AI exam in the world. And people used to prepare for it for, on average, for one year. I prepared for it for about six months. Uh, I, I took it after three weeks of preparation, and I not only failed the professor's uh, relished failing me and <laughs> rubbing my nose in the ground that don't ever show up with three weeks of preparation and then I uh, I pro prepared for another five months after that and five months this was in July of, of 93 I think and or 94 and then in December I, uh, December 93 and uh, December I took the exam again so five months later and they were like what happened to you <laughs> you managed to pass it I, I, no, I not only passed I passed with with uh, with the distinction and uh, okay. John McCarthy, the father of AI, was the head of my qualifying exam committee. So it's fair to say that you know what you're talking about, right? <laughs> well, uh, well, I hope so, and I certainly used to. So what happened was that back then AI, um, in the mid, in the early 90s, uh, that, that time period used to be referred to as the AI winter. Yeah. Uh, and the consequence of AI winter was that anything that approached a mild form of success used to completely quickly disassociate from AI. Right. So machine learning was one of these things. So right. machine learning started to become popular in those days, statistical machine learning. Uh, so UC Irvine and uh, Carnegie Mellon, there was a researcher called Tom Mitchell at Carnegie Mellon and many researchers here on the West Coast and, and, and other places who invented uh, various ways of um, formulating machine learning techniques. Uh, and then they created a subfield that came out of AI um, and there was machine learning and there were many flavors of it. There was statistical machine learning, probabilistic machine learning, uh, and there was neural networks. Um, and there used to be a library at UC Irvine, um, ML, MLC library, something like this, and mm -hmm. the UC Irvine library. And one of my friends extended that and, uh, and so forth. So, um, so that was machine learning. So it's clearly a subfield of AI. And right. AI itself um, was given that name in 1956. There was a conference um, at Dartmouth, and John McCarthy gave it the name Artificial Intelligence, and Marvin Minsky, who was the other great teacher of my life, he uh, gave it the definition. Uh, and the definition Marvin gave in 1956 was that AI is the science of making machines do those things that would be considered intelligent if they were done by people. Right. which is a, to this day, a very so sound and solid definition. Um, we are nowhere close to... Uh, not even remotely close. Not even remotely close to getting right. there, what right. Marvin imagined. And uh, actually, Marvin's interviews, Marvin gave a couple of interviews just before he passed away earlier this year, and he said the, the same, that we are not even close. Mm. Um, one particular technique um, that uh, was invented also in the 1950s, was called um, neural networks. Mm. And there was a guy, Rosenblatt, who invented perceptrons. And in 1958 or 1960, something like that, before I was born, Marvin, in fact, showed that a simple perceptron could not solve a basic problem, the, the XOR problem. You know, we have the XOR function, that if one uh, XOR zero is one, 
zero XOR one is one, but one XOR one is false and zero XOR zero is false. Okay. Getting, getting a perceptron to infer from a simple perceptron to infer from two inputs that this is the XOR function, it does not couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. So Minsky and Papert proved this. Um, and everybody thought that they had killed the entire field of neural networks, which they, that wasn't the point. They were simply trying to make a point about symbolic and cognitive reasoning versus neural reasoning. So a separate branch started developing neural networks uh, research in the 70s and early 80s. David Rumelhart, Jeff Hinton, people like this. They invented more complex kinds of neural networks multi-layer neural networks, multi-layer perceptrons and so forth, which became quite popular. I worked on that. Just before I came to Sanford, I was a summer intern at Intel. Yeah. And I did some very, very awesome uh, work that I'm really proud of okay. uh, to this day uh, in that lab. And my brother used to work there. I, I worked for him and for some of those guys at the Intel AI lab. Um, what has happened in the last 10 years is that uh, uh, a particular form of neural networks started to show very promising results for a particular class of problems. These neural networks are called uh, convolutional neural networks and convolutional. Yeah, CNNs, convolutional okay. neural networks and uh, that that field has a sub, sub name, it's called deep learning. Okay. Uh, it is called deep learning because this original Rosenblatt's perceptrons had only one layer. They had an input layer and an output layer. Mm -hmm. so in this case it would be two inputs and two outputs mm -hmm. and you basically do that. Then in the 70s, they invented multi-layer neural networks, so you would have more layers, and then let's say two or three outputs, so you would connect everything to, to everything and... Uh, Highly complex. Yeah, and, and, and then you would have, you know, this kind of a thing. So this is a two-layer neural network with two hidden layers. Deep learning has, the CNNs have many such hidden layers. They, they would have a minimum of 10 hidden layers. Okay. And the idea is that you can classify any, basically any problem with enough data sets, mm -hmm. you can classify automatically because compared to the 70s and 80s and the 50s, mm. our computational power has improved exponentially, yeah. uh, the amount of computing that is available to us. By Moore's Law. Moore's Law and, and, and clouds and, yeah. and so forth. Okay. So, Moore's law has enabled much cheaper computing yeah. and clouds like Google and, and Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook, etc. have like massive amounts of computers, uh, you know, more than a million computers working together. Right. Um, so, so this is an, and, and that, by the way, that is another thing that masks a lot of the conceptual advances. It's actually not so much conceptual advances, but the fact that Computing is now millions of times more powerful than it was right. 30 years ago. Right. Uh, so a lot of the results that we see now are simply because more stuff has become reachable. Yeah. Um, I mean, by com for example, when Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov, there was nothing AI about Deep Blue. It was just a uh, complex ability to look through search possibilities, and um, we can do that now. I think something like 10 million times cheaper. But that looks like learning, didn't it? In that looks like, I mean, the, the computing in your iPhone can beat uh, Gary Kasparov. Really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, 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 so deep learning uh, in the last few years, I would say five years, certainly in the last 10 years, 
uh, got to a point where classifying images, doing personalized recommendations, mm. identifying things inside even videos, mm. and doing things like self-balancing, uh, identifying things when a car is moving and stuff like that. These were all very difficult things to do 30, 40 years ago. Mm. Actually, my undergraduate research when I was a student at Syracuse was on computer vision. Mm. And in 1988, there was a, a machine, a car being built at CMU, Carnegie Mellon, mm. um, uh, called the NAV Lab. I still remember. Yeah. <laughs> it used to drive around the Carnegie Mellon campus at five miles an hour. Like a Google car, right? Like the Google car. But right. this was 1988. Right. Uh, now we talk about Uber putting in self-driving cars in Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. in Carnegie, where Carnegie Mellon is. Yeah. And there was actually a car driving around there. Yeah. And um, Martin Marietta and Lockheed Martin used to have a ALV or something that was also an autonomous, ALV was the autonomous land vehicle mm -hmm. that used to drive faster than the Carnegie Mellon right. uh, van, which had like tons of computers and everything on it. Okay. This is 1988, Dennis, when I was an undergraduate student. So, so so, because of that, right. now AI has sort of swerved, swerved to this point where everybody thinks that everything is deep learning, which is also nonsense. You and I are having a conversation, not because of deep learning, but because of our ability to symbolically express things and right. to interpret them and, right. and so forth. So, uh, uh, so, these are all different fields, but all under the bigger umbrella of AI. Mm. And Marvin talked about, Marvin's great book was called The Society of Mind. Uh, it is here somewhere, sitting here. These guys are reading chapters from it, and I quiz them on it. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, let's ask them. So finish? 19. 19? Now I'm 26. 26 is on? Context. Uh, what frames? On? On uh, sentence frames and what frames. Sentence frames and what frames. And what frames, yeah. yeah. So you're making them learn this stuff. So <laughs> you're making them learn this stuff so that they can actually talk about it in an intelligent way and not in a... <laughs> not in an AI-oriented way. Right. I mean, the amount of hype on AI is just insane. It is, it is this ridiculous. Is, this is what worries me, right? Yeah. I mean, we go, we go through this buzzword bingo thing, right? I mean, we've had them all. Yeah. And now it's AI. I'm looking at it, I'm thinking... The, the reason that I find it worrying, okay, is because it would appear that there is a faith emerging in the power of these algorithms to do things that are going to take us down very, very bad paths. And what I'm, I don't mean that in a, uh, a pejorative sense. I mean that in terms of making basic decisions that would be wrong or would be based on the wrong assumptions. Because my understanding has always been garbage in, garbage out. It doesn't matter how fast you process it, right? And so ex I've seen examples where people have just asked the wrong question. Yeah. And then the bottom line is that all these are techniques they are no different than all these techniques that we have had for hundreds of years. Right. Um, we feel a little bit threatened by them because um, um, we feel that these are sort of beyond our reach from a comprehension perspective. Mm. But in reality, these are uh, no different than the automation techniques that we have had in assembly lines and uh, other okay. areas. Um, we have to remove the mystery of it. We, we sort of, when, when we don't understand things, we tend to mystify them, we tend to yeah. glorify them, we become either afraid of them or we start to pray to them. And uh, The last thing you want to be doing is praying to these things, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so people say that, oh, you can build incredibly powerful <coughs> systems, but we have been able to build incredibly powerful systems long before there was AI. We have been able to build massive trains and, and rocket ships and 
nuclear reactors and, and so forth, and uh, which can destroy humanity at the touch of a button. Uh, yes, AI techniques can also have massive damage, and they are. Uh, we are on the verge of things that are going to be incredibly powerful, but we have had incredibly powerful technologies that we have existed with. So, um, we can. My view is that we have to treat AI as a collection of techniques. We have to treat AI as a society of mind, like Marvin talked about, and we have to educate people on AI. Uh, of course, AI techniques can help us educate ourselves, but uh, we have to educate people on what AI can do and what AI, what different kinds of AI techniques there are, and, and so forth. Um, and the more we do that, the uh, the more we will demystify this, and the more rational the entire debate will be. So, so the World Economic Forum folks asked me to chair a committee or a council or something on AI, and uh, that is part of the way that I am hoping to, to do that, uh, and obviously through Infosys now. In my own world, in Infosys, uh, AI can have a massive impact, yeah. uh, dual impact. On the one hand, AI can act as a great amplifier of people's abilities. Mm. The uh, I'll tell you an interesting story before I get to Infosys. There is a nice book that somebody gave me. Uh, our minds, ourselves, our robots, ourselves, something like that. Mm. You know, there was this Air France Flight 447 that crashed from, on the way from Brazil to yeah. Paris. What happened was that the main captain was on a break, he was sleeping. And the two younger pilots were flying the plane. Mm -hmm. They were just sitting there talking, and the autopilot was flying the plane. And all of a sudden, the pitot tube, which measures the um, airspeed, got, they flew through a frozen cloud and it got ice inside the pitot tube. And so the pitot tube stopped functioning. And then the autopilot went haywire, thinking that something is, is very bad, something very bad is going on with the plane, and it, would, it lost its orientation. So it handed control back to the human pilots, and the human pilots are both young. They did not have enough experience dealing with this kind of a thing. The autopilot did not explain, quote unquote explain, what the situation was when it handed the control back to the pilot. The pilot, one of them went to get the main captain. The other one tried to make sense of what was going on. They thought that the plane has turned upside down. So they tried to stabilize the plane. The plane lost altitude dramatically. And basically within a couple of minutes, the plane was in the water and everybody died. Um, and uh, and then two, it took them a while to find the plane and the black boxes and everything. The irony was that the black boxes were also found by robots which were sweeping the bottom of the floor, uh, ocean floor there. And it was so amazing that, that the point that the author makes, which is an incredibly important point, is it is not about AI replacing us or about us being uh, becoming redundant or AI killing us and all of this kind of nonsense. It is about our ability to work with autonomous and semi-autonomous machines and semi-autonomous and autonomous systems. Mm -hmm. That is what it is really all about. Simple flaw, for example, in many of these systems. If you mm -hmm. ask Google why a certain search result is the number one result, Google cannot explain that. You cannot ask Siri to explain why an answer is the answer. Mm -hmm. If you ask Siri, what is the weather like in Los Altos today? And Siri says 67 degrees and cloudy. And you say, why? 
<laughs> it won't know. It won't know. Right. The, the ability to explain things and articulate things mm. are different faculties inside our brains. And uh, these are more cognitive, more symbolic, more, um, more expressive, articulate systems. Not just the system that can instinctively identify a, a pattern mm. and match a pattern. Of course, deep learning plays a, a very key role in the way our intelligence works. Mm. But it is not the only thing going on in there, mm. and this is a part that is that is missed. So just as, uh, I mean, if the autopilot had, for example, explained to the pilot what was going on, so that they could do some kind of a, a bring some kind of a human diagnostic that the autopilot was not capable of. Mechanically, the autopilot is far more capable of flying a plane well yeah. than the pilots are. So the the point of such a system is to design these systems to amplify the people and say, whenever the autopilot gives up on control and says, hey, here, you take control back, it has to be able to explain what what is going on. That, that direct ability is extremely important. So my wish and my sense is that with enough common sense, I mean, there's Guha sitting right behind you. He came here to meet me. He is, uh, uh, he actually built Google's knowledge graph. Right. And he's one of the pioneers of AI, he and I went to school together. He was, a, he graduated from Stanford three years before I did. And his thesis was on context, exactly this idea of what a context is that we do our work in and, and stuff like that. Uh, he's helping us with our, with our platform work and, and so forth. Um, so my point is that we have to educate people on AI and with the right of, um, abilities, AI can become a great amplifier of ourselves just as other great technologies have, uh, you know, computing or writing, or these things have amplified our abilities in a very big way. Um, so now, coming to Infosys, it has a um, huge impact. So a lot of the jobs that got moved to companies like Infosys in the last 15 years, 20 years, are jobs that can now much more easily and more completely, more efficiently be done by systems. Right infrastructure management, for example, or running systems, database systems, file systems. Um, we have a 17, 18,000 person infrastructure practice. Other companies have even bigger infrastructure practices. But when you look at clouds at Google, for example, or Facebook, or other, or Amazon, there aren't armies of, of administrators mm. administering these clouds. There are systems that administer the clouds, and then there are people who are very capable people and they are called site reliability engineers, for example, they, that administer the autonomous systems which operate the, the infrastructure. So, wherever there is an opportunity to replace our work with mechanical autonomous work done by a system, we have to embrace that. Right. Because it amplifies us, it improves our productivity, it uh, makes us, you know, uh, more efficient. And in principle, with that efficiency, we can do more. Same number of people can do more of these projects. And ultimately, it can free us up to be creative, to be innovative. Mm. So, my view is that the services companies, and I am steering emphasis in this direction, and it is incredibly hard, that our future is this duality of automation, mm. improving our productivity, mm. and all the productivity that we save from that we unleash our creativity, our innovation. Mm. So this combination of automation and innovation mm. has to be our future. Mm. 
Uh, and that duality of automation and innovation has to be powered by education. It has to be powered by our ability to teach ourselves how to bring automation in and teach ourselves how to innovate. Um, problem finding, for example, is no matter how successful AI gets, in our lifetimes, we are not going to find problem-finding robots, you know. Right, <laughs> right. We will be able to, more and more of the problems that we are able to articulate will be solved with AI, so problem-solving will become exceedingly efficient. But problem-finding is an area that is going to continue to be uh, in the human frontier for, for the foreseeable future, certainly for our, your and my professional lives. And so this is my my idea, and, and AI is at the heart of it. That AI uh, and our platform that we have uh, that we have built uh, is precisely heading in this direction. That uh, it helps improve our productivity. It helps us build new kinds of intelligent applications. But most importantly, it frees us up to innovate. So people need to sign up the. The Shell Seekers AI 101 then, yeah? <laughs> I actually did a 55-minute class last year. Really? Wow. Yeah, with 30, 40,000 people have seen. Okay. And uh, I have to do four more chapters. Uh, I had promised the, the kids that I'll do four more chapters. And I'm going to do, find some time to do that one of these days. But you enjoy teaching anyway, right? I love to. I love to. Okay, thanks.